Lectionary Lab Live is recorded live in Gainesville, Florida and Brasstown, North Carolina. Welcome, everybody, to the Lectionary Lab Live. I'm John Fairless. I'm here with my bubba, Delmer Chilton. Say hey, you bubba. Hey, bubba. <laughs> hey, man. Good to hear you today. Now, get up with you to get ready and talk a little preaching coming up. We are preparing for the sixth Sunday of Easter in year A. These are the texts for May the 14th. 2023. Now, I know y'all hear that every week, and I pretty much sign on the same way every week, but Delmer and I are just interested in homiletical efficiency here and some proficiency, and we want to be clear about the texts that we're doing. Hope you've got those and listen along with them. But uh, Bubba, let's talk about... Well, we're uh, not going to share the time we, we got ready to record and realize we had prepared on different texts. Wrong so text. That, really, that little note is not for you guys. That's for us to make sure we're both on the same page. Like, wait a minute. In your life of this show, at least yep. once. At least once. We were literally on different pages. That's not what I'm working on. What do you mean? Um, so, yeah. Hopefully you don't show up on Sunday and realize you've prepared a sermon on the wrong text. Um, yeah. But, yeah, that's it. Uh, good stuff as we move now rapidly through the season of Easter. Uh, some of our folks maybe are thinking, is it still Easter? I didn't, you know, it seems like... And they're thinking summer vacation plans and, you know, whatever's coming up. But uh, really, strong texts in year A. This uh, this Easter tide, uh, maybe, I don't know, among the cycles A, B, and C, I may like this one about as much as, as, as any of them. Tell me what you got on your mind today, Bubba, as we prepare to preach for this upcoming Sunday. Well, I, you know, I love to find my theme, you know, and... Uh... I also like a little alliteration, and alliteration is at its best when you have the P's, the P-words. P-words. The persistent presence and protection of God. Do, 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 do. Okay, uh, that's about all we got time for today. <laughs> the no, that's awesome. The persistent presence and protection of God. Um, as Craddock said, ultimately all these texts work together. To say, Emmanuel, God is with us no matter where we are. Um, so in Acts, you have Paul talking about the hidden God that's been with us, even though we didn't know, even if we don't know who it is or don't know that there's a God there, God's still there. Mm -hmm. And the hidden God is revealed in the Christ event. In the Psalms, there's thanks that God has protected and perfected God's people. Mm -hmm. And uh, that perfection, that trying and testing, is a, a way of understanding that when we went through difficulty, we were had not been abandoned by God. God was present and active in what we were going through. Um, the Peter text, God with us in Christ, in suffering, in redemption, in hope, in the future, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Christ is God is present with us in all those things, and the gospel God with us in community and spirit, answering the question: What happens when Jesus leaves? We love one another, and the Spirit is with us in leading us in love and service. Right. So throughout, we have the persistent presence and protection of God. I like that uh, kind of, if you want to do, think through, and there's a possibility of, of preaching a sermon along those lines. So the other, every once in a while here, I'm, I record at Good Shepherd Episcopal Church because they mm -hmm. have much better internet than I have at home. <laughs> and every once in a while I'm walking across the parking lot coming in, there's a fellow leaving early service and uh, 
interesting guy. And almost every time I see him, which is about every five or six months, we coincide in the parking lot. He reminds me the reminds me that he once asked me the difference between a sermon and a homily, and I was able to tell him, and he had never understood before. Mm-hmm. A sermon is a discourse on a religious subject bolstered by references to Scripture. A homily is a sermonic exposition of a particular text. Right. So if this Sunday you wanted to do a sermon on the persistent presence and protection of God, mm-hmm. you could do that and then bolster it with references to all four of our texts. Right. And that's the first. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's what I'm talking about is that kind of thing. You could say, where is God when it hurts? Where mm-hmm. is God when we suffer? Where is God when that which we thought was a God? We we identified with God is no longer in our midst. Where do we find God? Where do you look right. to see God? And this these texts help us find that answer. Yeah. A second theme for the day, I think you could play with um, with the text from John and First Peter, particularly talking about the issue of with John. It's the farewell discourses, and Jesus is addressing the issue of I'm leaving, and you can't come with me. Right, and Peter is addressing in um, the baptismal community of uh, we worship a God we can't see, <laughs> we can't touch, yeah. we can't feel. Yeah. What? Yeah. Where do you? How do you live faithfully while serving a God you can't see or touch? Right, that's the question. You could explore that with um, we. You endure through suffering as part of it. You do not let suffering push you away mm-hmm. from God in your life. You in, you continue with faith in the Christ event. You look back and say, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection sustains and informs our life as we go forward. Got it. Thirdly, we endure through love for one another. And the way in which John works it with the language about the mutual indwelling, I think the technical term is they abide in me and all that, that that love that we're sharing with one another is not our feeling of affection for similar people. Mm-hmm. That's the active love of God in Christ living in us as a community, we love one another through action and it's God in Christ living in us. And we live through obedience to the spirit, which in, in John, it's hard. It Hmm. put your systematic theology aside. It's hard to tell the difference between whether the spirit's a third person of the Trinity or if it's Christ, the spirit of Christ, you know, but obedience to the spirit. We'll talk more when I talk purely Mm -hmm. about the gospel about command and love and how that works. But this, for this kind of theme, it's how do you live faithfully? Right. While in a world where you you can't say there's God or there's God, you can refer back to acts Mm -hmm. and the unknown God. And you can say, well, here's where you can find God. Yeah. Well, and this fits in the overall arc that yeah. we laid out early, uh, say in this this season of Eastertide, yeah. sort of roughly the first half, the post-resurrection appearances, what difference does the resurrection of Christ make? And then uh, we've transitioned last time, and, and we're now reading stories and thinking of how then does the church live out this resurrection yeah. faith? And yeah. so uh, I think today's text, Continue that very nicely. Yeah. yeah. How do we deal with it in suffering and in absence? Mm-hmm. And where mm-hmm. is Christ? And where can you find Christ? And et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And answers all mm-hmm. those kind of questions. So let's let's right. walk through the text in the order in which they're read in the liturgical let's service. Let's do it. Let's have a little Acts. Acts 17, 22 through 31. First thing you got to think about is the context. Is it a place or a people? Hmm. Um, you know, Arapacus. Um, is a large outcropping of rock in Athens. 
Uh, traditionally, it's where a trial was the gods. One of the, one of the uh, Poseidon's son was murdered. I don't remember all hmm. the details. Yeah. Look it up. But <laughs> there was Ares is, you know, the god of war. And there was a trial. And, and eventually, tra- tra- traditionally, there was a body that had a continually reduced level of authority within Athens. That was also referred to as the Areopagus because that's where hmm. they met. And this is where continually people went for um, discussion of various important issues. Now, the question, and it's unresolved, is uh, how much authority did this group actually have? Were they just a discussion group? But the reality is, is he was in that place and he was talking to uh, people quote, philosophers. Now, we not, we're not talking about the philosophy department of the University of Athens. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about educated people who talked about these issues and they had other professions, if mm-hmm. they had a profession or whatever. Yeah. And the question, there is a question as to what kind of genuine authority they had over anything yeah. or whether it's just discussion, but that's who he's talking to. Mostly Epicurean and Stoic philosophy. Mm-hmm. And he references authorities from both of those traditions in this speech. Well, he is, you know, again, I have to jump in before it leaves my brain, which happens more frequently and much more often than I like these days. But regardless of which one of those is, these are leading citizens. These are thought influencers. These are people that are part of the dialogue. Uh, Not exactly... Man on the street, you know, maybe the di- the dialogue level is, is somewhat above that. But in the Greek society of the day, these, yeah, these are thinkers. These are people. And so their discourse does make its way into is common thought, common speech, etc. Kind of an analogy is um, this... Uh, these days, this is not the the old the people I occasionally see the old guys with coffee at McDonald's that's you know <laughs> sitting in the corner solving the world. This is the faculty lounge. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Um, I grew up in a small town where yeah. that happened to have a branch campus of the University yeah. of Tennessee, and there so there was often mix between. The, you know, kind of doctors and lawyers, business people, university professors at the Martin Bakery, the the coffee shop of the day. And so in that place, there was some of that, yeah, solving the problems of the world. But there was a pretty good cross-section and a a bit of dialogue of what was happening. And there's a point to this is that Paul here had a different audience than his usual audience that he had preached Correct. to where he'd go and he'd go to the synagogue and most of the people that in a, a Jewish background audience of working people. Got it. You know, and you'd say the dyers and sellers. And so he'd have working people, a lot of professional women, but they're working women. And you've got slaves and working. These are the people he's talking to usually. Mm-hmm. And he presents it one way. Here he has a this, different audience. So he's trying to say, different. how do I present this to this audience. And we all have to ask that question. You know, I didn't preach the exact same sermons, though the same point, at Holy Trinity in Nashville, where a third of the congregation had doctor in front of their name, and they were medical professionals, and Vanderbilt University professionals were at least well over half of the congregation, as I did in three rural parishes, congregations in a parish in North Carolina. Equally smart people, but different way of thinking through things. And you have to think, it's not a matter of intelligence, it's a matter of who they are and how they operate. Yeah, equally intelligent people, but who have operated and uh, been influenced by, even (laughs) educated by, uh, we talk about the school of hard knocks, the school of life. There's some pretty doggone intelligent people I've met with no formal degrees to speak of. Well, uh, so, yeah, that's it. The smartest person I ever had as a parishioner was named Cack Richmond, and he managed to get through the third grade before he yeah. quit. Yeah. And he was one of the smartest people, intelligent and with human skills I ever met. 
And I will say some of the um, least functioning in society and doing really stupid things had PhD after their name. And that's all well, I'm perhaps say multiple, about that. Yeah. There you go. Moving along. You're so right. He's a different audience. Yeah, understanding, and this illustrates one of our electionary lab principles. As a preacher, you've got to understand who's in the pews, who's listening. And uh, I learned after, you know, sort of moving through the system, often when I would go to a church, somebody said, well, tell us about your style of preaching. I'm like, well, yeah, I do kind of have a style, but it really does depend on who I'm going to be speaking to. Where, Where am I going to? Yeah, who's going to be listening there was, and, a, there was a James Clellan taught preaching at Duke long before I got there. He was a, in, a Scotsman and immigrated. And a lot of Scotsmen fell in love with baseball in the early 20th century. I read hmm. about that, a lot of different ones, preachers in particular. He loved baseball. He had a book called Preaching to be Understood. Hmm, and he talked like about it. pitchers. And he said, you don't pitch the same to Babe Ruth as you do the utility player who's mm-hmm. coming up to pinch hit. They're just, mm-hmm. and if you do, you're going to get tattooed. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Ah, I got to hold on to that. Yeah. If you do, you're going to get tattooed. Yes, <laughs> I'm thinking about that from the pulpit. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so we, we approach it differently. Now what Paul did here is he made an argument from deism moving toward the Christ event. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, quoting Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, poets, he made this argument from a kind of deistic point of view. There's a God, God that we don't know, but which holds in its hand. You'll see all of that. And then he, the last two verses, 30 and 31, he moves into a little, the discussion of, and I know who that God is. And that something that's, after all those years, something has changed. And let me tell you about it. (laughs) Friends, I'm here to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Yeah. And the response was, meh. (laughs) You know, you got Peter's sermon and he preaches and the response is, 3,000 get converted, what must we do? The response to this is, some scoffed and some said, hmm, tell me more. Yeah. Come back and tell us more. We'll, um, we'll consider this another day. It felt yeah. like an audition. He was auditioning to join the Philosopher's Club, and they said, all right, thank you. Next. Yeah. <laughs> We'll put up a callback list uh, later, and you can check that and see if you're on it. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the interesting things is the question, was this sermon a failure? Uh, well, was it a failure? Uh, some people have said, because right after this, at the beginning of chapter 18, it says he went on to Corinth. And in Corinthians 2, 1 through five, he has that wonderful expression, I know, resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified and not to come before you with words of wisdom and mm. that sort of thing. And some people have said, mm. uh, well, he just looked back at what happened at Areopagus and he said, I ain't never doing that again. He, he learned his lesson. Yeah. yeah. That's a possibility. Or... It wasn't a failure. And he said when he looked at his Corinthian audience, he knew what he needed to be talked about with them. Mm. Because when he went before a Jewish audience, things could be rooted in Hebrew scripture and story. And then he said this story is completed in what Jesus as the Messiah, etc. Well, you're talking to a Greco-Roman audience. None of that matters. Mm-hmm. So he had to find something to build toward the same event. And I think right. for us as preachers, one of the, the things is we just have to figure out. In the 21st century, in the culture in which we find ourselves, what do we have to do to build toward the gospel, Christ event? Absolutely. Very important question. Well, and there's a, you know, is this sermon a failure? 
well, we're reading it, ain't we? <laughs> and talking about it, and it is preserved in holy writ, sacred scripture. Uh, yeah, that, no, there's something for us to learn here, and, and it's not always the initial response, necessarily. Um, I suspect there was something of Paul's that did take seed in some minds yeah. on this day. Yeah, but we don't have a letter. A but we have letters to the Corinthians, the Ephesians, mm-hmm. the Philippians. We do not have a letter to the, the Athenians. The Athenians, yeah. It made it, yeah. He might have planted a seed that took a long time. Long time. Uh, uh, Paul has sown. Apollos has watered. What that kind of logic, yeah. you know? Maybe who knows? Well, yeah. but there is also yeah. we do need to look at that and think in terms of <laughs> uh, again. I think. One of the benefits and one way we could proclaim this is to talk to people and say, if we're going to stand, want to move outside these doors ourselves and talk mm-hmm. to our friends and neighbors and relatives about mm-hmm. Christianity, we have to start where they are, not where we are. Absolutely. That's one of the keys. I've written that down in my preparation. Paul started where they were, and, you know, that's the best you can and do. And if you're preaching on this to the congregation, it may be in saying, in your personal and, you know, a lot of them don't like to talk about witness, but in your personal conversation with your family, with your children, with your grandchildren, with your friends, mm-hmm. start where they are. Mm-hmm. Don't start with, hey, y'all ought to be in church. You don't respect <laughs> the way things have always been, etc. Start with where they are and hear from yeah. where they are and try to find a way yeah. in which the gospel speaks to their life. Yeah. Right. You know, Baba, it, it may be that the letter to the Athenians has just been lost. Um, it, <laughs> it's entirely it could, possible. It could have been very short and much in the line of Eric Cartman. Cartman, screw you guys, I'm going home. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and he went back to it. Yeah, there might have been a letter, but the church just didn't want to keep it. That's, that it. Was not, That's it. That was one that went, oh, he said that. We don't want to let yeah. yeah. Moving on. Psalm 66, <laughs> 8 through 20. Again, we find a discussion of protection and perfection. One of the things I find fascinating in this is, I mean, this is a, I'm not going to do the kind of audience outline and all that. What I'm fascinated in here is, uh, this is a prayer of thanksgiving for protection. But there's this issue in 10 through 12 of trials and testing. Mm-hmm. question is, what is God's agency involvement in the difficulties we face in life? And this has been a long biblical conversation. This is mm. not unique to this little spot here, and it's... Uh, comes up over in Peter, this issue of the suffering that we face. And there's there's a theological position that God doesn't do those things to us. They happen. It's the nature of the world and God's present with us. And there's another long theological tradition that God actually does, has a hand in the bad things that happen to good people. Mm-hmm. And uh, from from Job... There's, that's there, the sufferings that Christ suffered, etc. And here, this one says, it, "Listen to the interpretation. God, you, O oh God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. By implication, God let it happen. Yeah. So." And the interpretation is, though in, the, in those words, you have tried us as silver is tried, you have tested us, that there is, you have perfected us. I don't know, there's, there's theological ambiguity there for folks who do not want to have a God who does that sort of thing. And... This is this is evident from the very beginning. I've I've been in a detailed study of the book of Genesis with my congregation. It's a study I've taught, I guess, five times now. I love it. I, I, I digging into Genesis, and one of the insights you have to stop and realize, and this is along the area of God 
having a hand or at a yeah. minimum being in the midst of trouble, in the midst of evil, uh, if you will. That great opening line to Genesis chapter 3, quote, the fall, we talk about Eve's choices, Adam's choices, etc. Now the serpent was more subtle than any of the creatures God had made. Where the heck does the serpent come from? If, if God is the God of creation and we've got this stuff going on, there's, there's something about the, the, the very presence of evil and yet God being uh, at work, being in the midst. Not quite the same as what you're saying about yeah. the, the testing and the trying, but my point has been, and it's come slowly to me to say, yeah. This, when you say this is an old story, this is yeah. an old question, yeah. well, it's the oldest. Yeah. <laughs> it's the well, oldest. That, that, that any attempt to tie up theodicy's loose ends, you tie up one, you leave a loose end somewhere else. No answer yeah. fixes it. You're going to be tied up. This is what if, you're going if, to end up being. If, if, if you say God is involved, mm-hmm. even if involved, in the suffering we have to the extent that it's necessary in order to train us up, you still have God doing bad things to good people. Certainly bad things happen. If you say God doesn't do any of that, then you're saying God is inept to really protect us from it. And do you want to have a God that's... And the truth is paradoxical. It's somewhere in the middle of all of that. I had talked... Yeah, I talked to a fellow this last week or so who said, "Well, you know, I've been thinking about it. And you got the you got God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and you got the devil. Seems like to me they're all kind of on the same team." <laughs> and I thought, and I told him, "I I don't know that you're wrong. I yeah. <laughs> it's all in it's all in a mix in here." Uh, yeah. So yeah, God is at work everywhere, everywhere. And so you've got the trials and the testing, and the question then becomes. What are we to do in the midst of that? Rather than trying to figure out exactly where what God is doing in that and the initiative, where is God in it and how do we respond to that? Mm-hmm. And there, there are several things here. In verse um, 12, they, they all have this nice short little words. Yet, you see, you got all these things that went bad, and it said, yet you have brought us out to a spacious place the grace of god throughout verse 12 then you get to verse 20 uh 19 and you had but truly god has listened Mm -hmm. the rebuttal if you will is Mm -hmm. yet but and in verse 20 blessed be god because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love and there's the key. The psalmist's basic reflection here is an interpretation of why we suffer, particularly why the people of Israel, God's people, suffered in the ways in which they did. And it is that God has testing, or and the testing is not pass-fail, or trial is not guilty-not guilty. It mm-hmm. is like silver is tried, that is to say, purified has improved, you know, it's like that that kind of training. It's a training kind of test. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yet, but, because, mm. the affirmation of faith of the psalmist throughout this is in the midst of things we don't understand, we can trust that God has brought us out. Yeah. That it's God has little... given heed to the words of our prayer, yeah. God has not removed God's steadfast love from our yeah. midst. It's the little things, like these little words you've just pointed out, yet, but, because, so on, that that really give us a lot of keys to understanding these things. And I would quote my friend and yours, uh, Bishop James Dixon, shout out, because Bishop listens to us most every week. Um, if I could remember, Bishop, you'll have to help me out with this next phone call we have. Um we were talking the other day, and he said something to the effect of, we've got to remember that it is uh, little or small things that are powerful. Yeah. 
small is small is great and uh in a society that thinks you know big is great and bigger is better and so on and so forth i appreciate you pointing out don't skip over some of these small little words too quickly i like it moving over to peter first peter 3 13 through 22 again uh instructions for new christians and some exhortation and I would say this is this is a this section is a meditation on the fact that life is unfair. Hmm. We all start off as kids. The first big protest we have against the universe is to tell our parents, "But that's not fair." Hmm. And if you were lucky to have a mother like mine, you were immediately informed who the hell ever told you that life was going to be fair. Although my mother would never say hell. Yeah. Who you were misinformed, ever told son. Yeah. you that life is going to be fair? Where did you get that idea? And life's not fair. This is one of the first things we learn. We desire it. We hope for it. We complain about it. We groan and moan. I think part of growing up all the way through adolescence and teenage years, we mostly do that. Uh, and some of us do it the rest of our lives, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Life is unfair. And this is a meditation on that fact that sometimes good people suffer for no good reason. Uh, you know, it's a, as I, we've already talked, it's a consistent biblical and theological theme. We can trace it through. And, and I was thinking in terms of uh, just there are various answers to this. There's a lot of biblical work uh, that's mm-hmm. consistent with the Buddhist response to this, which is the basic First two things, which is, first of all, life is difficult. Life is suffering. That's one. Second one is, once you accept the fact that life is difficult or life is suffering, it's not as difficult you don't suffer as much. You remove (laughs) the complaint that it's unfair. Yeah. Takes that off your plate. Mm -hmm. This is partly... Peter's answer in 13 through 17. This is, this is one way of hearing what, what he is saying there. You do suffer for doing what's right. You're blessed. You know, he's partly saying that, yeah, you're going to suffer. So don't get so excited about it. Make sure you're suffering. You haven't earned your suffering. You can feel better if you're suffering and you don't deserve it. You have a clear conscience. And then uh, 13, 17, particularly 18 through 22, he adds in the Christ event Yes. to think about our suffering. Um, he segues to the redemptive nature of suffering, of Christ's suffering in ours. This is the piece, and this is not anti-Buddhist. Now, don't misunderstand me. I, I think Buddhism's right. I've learned that's been a vital lesson for me. Life's difficult, and if you accept that, it's less difficult. The surrender makes sense. Surrender yes. makes sense. But Christianity has this segue to the redemptive nature of suffering, that it changes things. And if you accept that notion that Christ's suffering has, as he points out, saved us. Then there are three things in this text that we are told that in the midst of suffering, we as Christians are called to do. Mm -hmm. One is do not fear. Verse 14, just do not fear. Hmm. Don't fear. Do, Do not fear what they yes. fear. Yes. Do not fear what they fear. Right. Um, the, the, yes. That's a whole other discussion and yeah. a whole other great way to think about the place of fear uh, in the in the godly life. But yeah, don't be intimidated it. by the persecution you receive. Mm-hmm. And it, and then second is tied to it, and so be do be willing, be ready. In the midst of your suffering, to be able to say, I am not fearful because I trust in Christ. Yeah. Always be ready mm-hmm. to make your defense to anyone who demands. Now, I've heard that and tied with some other things to, 
as a way of saying, you don't need to prepare a sermon, just always be ready. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. Your congregation is not intentionally persecuting you. <laughs> That's it. But they might if you don't prepare your sermons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, this is about being ready when asked to say, I'm I'm okay because I trust in Christ. Yeah. Be ready. This for me is on this reading, maybe this time around with Peter, a, a real heart of what I'm seeing right yeah. here in 15 and 16. Always ready to make your defense. Don't be intimidated, you know. Yet... Your defense, your your account, do it with gentleness and right. reverence. Yep. And there's a lot of full suffering yes. being made up by people in our culture. Right. We're losing our Christian nation. We're under attack. The the church is under attack. Our beliefs and our morals and 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 the quote fight back is anything but gentle and reverence. Yes. Uh, and reverent. And that concerns me. I think we're we're losing grip. I'm not trying to get off on mm. Christian nationalism or any such other tangent. I just want to hold up this model. Yes, be ready. Yes, give an account. Yes, don't fear what they fear. Let's keep it gentle yep. and reverent. Okay? Yep. Let's uh, some respect. Yeah, a lot of the problem that from any area which people are beginning to feel a loss of their privilege, mm -hmm. and they're not defending Christ, they're defending their privilege. Their privilege. And the and Paul, Peter is saying, you know, with gentleness, keep your conscience clear, be mm -hmm. be reverent, be keep your conduct clear. Yeah. And what witness do we make? Mm -hmm. I, I really remember I remember a guy and I can't remember his name all, right now but he was a guy who was uh, you have seven years from being in the old days in the Methodist church where I started as, as a probationary member before you were supposed to move on to elders orders and full connection and he was in his seventh year and brilliant guy and working on a PhD and a student pastor and good pastor as folks loved him to death and he's just a really good pastor and i said why why haven't you gone ahead and got your elders orders and he said well <clears throat> i think about it but then i go to the local ministerial association and everybody all these guys are yelling and screaming about this that and the other and he said i just realized the people i'll be classed with <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he finally, I think he did end up professor, but he was right. Uh, I know who he was talking about. This kind of aggressive, obnoxious, um, confrontational uh, way of approaching the world, you know, mm -hmm. and thinking you're standing firm for the faith. That's, that's not who we're called to be. Not gotcha. Really. This is where we Lutherans don't need to imitate Luther. We need to say, believe him when he said, chief of sinners, um, I'm a real sinful man, and say, yeah, Luther, you were, because he could be really nasty to people he disagreed with, and that's not what we're called to imitate mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. All right, moving on from that. So, and, and the third thing, so the first was don't be afraid. The second is make a clear witness with gentleness and reverence. And the third is, look to Christ. Yeah. This is 17 through 19. Look at the <laughs> sufferings of Christ and look at the redemptive nature of those. Um, I'm not going to dive into the spirits in prison and all that. Some people say it was the ultimate in suffering. Others say it was the ultimate opportunity for all people of all time, <laughs> living or dead, to have had an opportunity to receive, you know, uh, you can go have some fun with that. Everybody, if you want to chase that around. Chase that around, have fun. Y'all go is, ahead. Is uh, it the yeah. harrowing of hell? Yep. You know, or is it Jesus went ultimate suffering? He went to hell to totally suffer. Mm -hmm. The point here is that um, 
a logic that doesn't follow for us, but was a typical uh, Hebrew scripture thinking in which he makes this equation between the flood that killed the whole world, but saved the eight on the ark Mm -hmm. and our waters of baptism that save us. Don't stretch that picture too far because you're, you know, you, but hold on to the water and the, as it's connected to the event of the Christ that we are saved through suffering, the redemptive nature of suffering and the possible redemptive nature of our suffering. And homiletically would say, what does it mean for us to suffer for the world? Are there ways in which we suffer for the world that is redemptive in imitation of Christ? It's not just, I'll just put up with this till I die and then I get to go to heaven. (laughs) Oh, wow. Or do we, like Christ, suffer for the world, not just in the world? Uh, little words. Do we? Good little words. There they are. Do we suffer in the world and just hold on? Or do we suffer for the world? Do we make choices that are for, for others because we're Christian and we're imitating Christ? That's yeah. the question that Peter pushes us to. How is our suffering yeah. redemptive? We better get to a little gospel, Bubba. Here we are, John 15 through 21. I want to make a couple of... I, I wouldn't worry about it because my points are quick today, I think, on this gospel lesson. Um, I think, first of all, it probably ought to be, if you're going to read it, Go ahead and read 15 through 24 if you come with those pre-printed <laughs> bulletins. Just push it on out. This, yeah. I think this pericope really ought to go through 24. Good good point. And uh, I'm not exactly sure how it, the committee cut it off, but his key point has to do with uniting of love and obedience. And so if you do 15, 21, 24, it's repeated three times in that shorter set of verses. Verse 15 is uh, two of them are in the readings as we have. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Boom. Down in 21, they they who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And then 24, after a little conversation with Judas, not Iscariot, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. So it's reiterated three times. Mm-hmm. Love and commandments go together. So how do we understand that? Because we hear command like a sergeant yelling at recruits, an order from on high. The real key to this is this is an obedience born out of a relationship of trust, not out of fear and compulsion. This is a want to, not a have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how you get to that is understanding that love is not a feeling it is an action mm-hmm. it is the act of sacrificing self look back up into suffering for the sake of the other taking actions that benefit the other person that is an act of love And how one loves in relationship with God in Christ is as God did in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, Mm -hmm. God gave Mm -hmm. his only son. And all that's implied in gave, not just the incarnation, but in that is gave life, gave up life, and the resurrection. So all of that is implied in in what we're talking about here. So we find ourselves, as we look back through this text, it becomes more clear. If you substitute teaching for keep my commandments, those who love me will follow my teaching. It makes a little bit more sense. Right. We talked a little bit about children. So 
when you're a little child, you do what daddy says because daddy's bigger than you are. <laughs> or and in our day and time, liable to whoop your hind end. But when we were growing yeah. up, my wife had a, an apron. Uh, when she when my kids were little, she had a T-shirt. It wasn't an apron. It was a T-shirt that had a mama bear on it. said, that's because I said so. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. So there, we go through this phase in natural life that we obey the parents and listen to them because they have power over us. Then they go through with most cases, the adolescence and teen years when we find ourselves not having to. Mm -hmm. And if we come to some kind of maturity, then we can look back and understand because our parents are imperfect, not perfect parents. We come back and we understand and we begin to imitate because of the relationship of love and respect that has grown and understanding what they were at. Well, you take that and you magnify it. And many of us, you begin with fear of God and you move through a relationship with God and you move into a situation where you're obeying not because you have to, but because you want to, because the nature of the relationship is such that it's natural to follow, be a part of that. And frankly, if you say you love God and you're not love following the quote commandments, which are about loving each other, you're breaking the great commandment, which is love mm. the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. So what all he's saying here is a statement of fact. It is, it is not a statement of, Y'all better behave and love one another and do what I say, or you're not, not my people. I'll throw you out. No, he, I'm going to call my daddy, and he's going to come. Again, this yeah. is the difference between descriptive and prescriptive. Mm -hmm. the, John is describing the nature of the Christian community, and it's within the farewell discourse. So what he's saying is, when I leave, where are you going? You'll be okay because I'll be present and the Father will be present in your midst in the love you show for one another. Yeah. And yeah. if you have any question about how to do that loving of one another, I'm sending you another advocate, the spirit of truth, that in that mutual loving relationship, you will be able to come to an understanding of how one loves, mm -hmm. what actions are loving. Yeah. That's the yeah. ongoing, as your tradition, UCC now, says God is still speaking. Well, how is God speaking? God is speaking in the church in that loving dialogue with the scripture and with one another and the world as we find ways to love yeah. one another and love the world. Yep. as the presence of God in the world. That is some awfully rich stuff, and uh, I'm kind of reflecting on how these tie together, which they do. There's a little bit of a plan going on here. Following the example of Paul at the Oropagus, one of the sort of common ground areas that strikes me in preparing for this is it floats around in lots of different ways, but there's various kinds of people from beer advertisers to, uh, you know, churches to everybody else. You are not alone. Right? You are not alone. And, and people feeling estranged, people feeling separated, people feeling all sorts of things in our society respond to that. Oh, what do you mean? Tell me how I'm not. Tell me how. I'm, tell me how I'm not alone. And so, it kind of starts that way, and it opens into this gospel. Jesus says, "I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you orphaned. I just told you last week in the sermon that I'm going away, and I'm going to prepare a place. But I am sending the Advocate, the Spirit, to be with you, to be beside you, to be." You are not alone, not alone, and uh, a very nice way to maybe consider as an entree with our folks into this text. 
I just have to reflect, you pointed out that uh, in the verses, if you continue, you get uh, Judas, not Iscariot. You know, there's a little parenthetical note there. How grateful was Judas to say, (laughs) I'm glad you let him know, not Iscariot. And I don't know if any of you are watching the relatively new series with Bob Odenkirk, Lucky Hank. Uh, I think it's on AMC. Good stuff. Uh, Bob Odenkirk is one of the people I will always watch. And there's a character in the the story whose name is Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) Oh, dear. And and he's actually a a, a benefactor to the university where where Bob Odenkirk's character works. And in a move to say, no, not that Jeffrey Epstein, the president of the college proposes that they give him a middle initial Q, and they, uh, this guy's given like $50 million, and they're going to put it on the building, the Jeffrey Q. Epstein Center for the Arts or whatever. It's just hilarious. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I believe, not Iscariot. <laughs> I believe if my name were Jeffrey Epstein at this point, I think I would consider a name change. There you go. There All you right. go. Well, thank you. Yeah, Bubba, I've enjoyed it. As always, we uh, we managed to squeeze a lot of stuff in today. Thanks, y'all, for listening. Thanks for uh, anytime you give us a comment, some little feedback. We always appreciate it. Bubba, uh, I don't uh, reckon that there's a whole lot else that we ought to do today other than to tell everybody bye. Everybody bye. Lectionary Lab Live is a Two Bubbles and a Bible production. Our opening theme is Next Steps, performed by Half.Cool. We go out today with I Will Not Leave You Comfortless, composed by Everett Titcomb, performed by the Choral Scholars of St. Paul Episcopal in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm.